Well, good morning, Reality. Good to see you all today. Dave's asked me um, to come and to talk to you all on race. First time I've ever been here. Heard so much about you when I first came to the city. Uh, all I heard was Reality San Francisco and had a chance to hang out with Dave and then later on Dave and the staff and love what God is doing. But please relax. This ain't a angry black man time. I own a home in the Bay. I ain't mad at nobody. <laughs> like one of my staff, seriously, one of my staff members, you know, this white person said, um, uh, Brian, if you could live at any point in world history, when would it be? I said, as a black man? Now. <laughs> 1753 wasn't good for me. 1853 wasn't good. 1950. So I am not mad, all right? So this ain't going to be some biblical beatdown or any of that stuff. But there are some things that are on my heart, and I want to draw you to the scriptures, and I want to walk you through what I believe to be the seminal text um, on the gospel. In fact, uh, for titling purposes, I want, to, I want to just call this just gospel, exclamation mark, question mark. So I, I want to give you just gospel today. You with me on that? But it's found in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's important that I read all of it to you, all right? Pick me up in verse 1. Uh, if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, the guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. And Paul says these words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Now, if I was in a chocolate church back in the 90s, I'd call this naughty by nature. <laughs> I didn't think that'd fly here. Okay. <laughs> like the rest of mankind. But Verse 4, cue the Hammond B3 organ. But God. And it's okay to say amen to me. Makes me preach faster. I know you're getting it. All right? So tell me, preacher, brother, amen. When you're ready for me to be finished, say, land the plane. We'll land the plane. But if you don't say nothing, I'm going to preach longer. But God, being rich in mercy, that's his first time doing it, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen. By grace you have been saved. I love what my friend Matt Chandler says, grace means you didn't eat your dinner and you still get dessert. and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Hear the repetition, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
for we are his workmanship. Paul's writing in Greek, the Greek word for workmanship, poema, which actually means poem. You are, you're God's poem. You're created on purpose and for a purpose. Your mom and daddy may not have planned on you being here. And one of the ways you know that is if your closest sibling is a decade older than you. Let me drop a prophetic word on you. You was a surprise. But in the omniscient sovereignty of God, there are no surprises. You are his poema. I was with a buddy of mine just the other, other night. We were sitting at a restaurant talking, and the lady serving us just, she said, can I just sit down next to you? There's something about you. Okay, fine. And so she sits down next to us, and she says, and she couldn't have been any more than 24, 25 years of age. She says, my mother tried to abort me. And she just shared her story. And right there at the table, we just told her, God's got a purpose for your life. And she prayed to receive Jesus Christ in a restaurant right there in Palm Springs. For we are his workmanship. Now, the words of Scripture are inspired. The little chapter headings are not. Okay, so I need you to get that because at the end of verse 10, in many of our Bibles, there's a little chapter heading. There's a little, it just, it's a little break that now tells you that we're switching gears. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they don't. So I think the break here does us a disservice. Right, because now we're just thinking what's about to come is not connected with what we just read. See, I I don't think, if you're a Christian, I don't think any objections saved by grace through faith. Amen. I was naughty by nature. Hip-hop, hooray. (laughs) See what I said there. But God, being rich in mercy. No no no, no, no objections there. But now look at what he does in verse 11. Therefore... Which means what he's about to say, he is hitching that train to what he's just said. Remember that at one time, watch it now, you Gentiles in the flesh. That phrase, in the flesh, don't need to spend a day in seminary to know that one. That means he's talking ethnicity. This is not me. This is the word of God. Saved by grace through faith. Now let's talk about race. And it's quiet in here. Y'all just added another five minutes to this little sermon here. (laughs) Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, speaking of non-ethnic Jews that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, not by your good works, but by the blood of Christ. 
for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create, make note of this phrase, in himself, here it is, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. What is Paul doing here? He's writing these words to the church of Ephesus, which is a multi-ethnic church. He's addressing Jew and Gentile here. What is he saying? In this, the church of Jesus Christ manifested at Ephesus, there is no ethnic home team. There's no visitors here. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you're no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now, Father, would you be both with what I say and how I say it. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Edit out anything that attracts undue attention to myself and edit in everything that glorifies and magnifies your name. In this preaching moment, may it be said of me what it was said of Jesus, that they they saw a man full of grace and truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. There's a verse that I believe every adult child should quote many times to their parents. It is a verse tucked away in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I always quote that to my dad whenever I see him. And I always end with the question, are you a good man? (laughs) Oh, maybe a couple years ago, we're seated there. My dad lives in Atlanta, and we're on the north side of Atlanta enjoying a good lunch at the Cheesecake Factory, and we're sitting there, and I quote to him, as I always do, um, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22, a good man leaves inheritance to his children's children. Uh, Are you a good man? And my dad says, funny, you should bring that up right now. I I just got finished making some changes to the will. Talk about a record-scratching moment, right? Everything stops. My ears perk up. Tell me, what did you change? He says, it's interesting, son. I sat down with my lawyer here in the state of Georgia, and my lawyer says, Dr. Loritz, I see you've got four kids, three of them biological, one of them adopted. He says, before we get started, I I just want you to understand basic fundamentals to Georgia state law. Georgia state law stipulates that at any given moment, Dr. Loritz, you can edit out from your will your biological kids. But Georgia state law also stipulates that at no given point, Dr. Loritz, can you edit out your adopted child. That child is secure. 
Now this blesses me because when I come to Ephesians chapter 1 as Paul kicks off this incredible book, this breathtaking book on the church, he says, let's get some things squared away. When you got saved, you were adopted into the family of God. That God in his benevolent grace saw you in the midst of your mess and saved you as is and chose you into the family of God. You've been adopted. For the longest time, I used to think that adoption was second-class citizenship, but right on the heels of saying we've been adopted, Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 also says, and you were sealed with the precious Holy Spirit. The idea of the sealing of the Spirit, it was authentication. Here, the emperor of Rome, the Caesar, would take his ring, would dip it in hot wax, and would stamp a letter that was from him, and it bore the impression of the Roman emperor. And when you got that and you saw his insignia, you, you knew this is the real deal. When you got saved, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're the real deal. There's no need to mimic the world. There's no need to mimic uh, other things in this world. You are the authentic ones in Christ. But not only that, the sealing of the Spirit means first-rate security. For Jesus himself would say, those who've been placed in the Father's hands can never be removed. You're sealed. You're secure. What does that family look like that you've been adopted in? John says that when he was exiled on the island of Patmos, he says, I looked up into the heavens. I believe David, I was listening to him last week, uh, referenced this. I looked up into heaven and I saw people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. So that your family that you've been adopted into is a thoroughly multi-ethnic family. But before we get to that, let's go back to the opening verses of Ephesians 2. Paul, as he's giving us the good news of the gospel, he can't really give us the good news of the gospel until he begins by giving us the bad news. He says, we were dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Having no hope. Dead. I remember when I first met my wife, man, I was (laughs) Poe. Not poor. I couldn't afford the other O and the R. I I was (laughs) Poe. Fellas, ever taken a girl out on a date and y'all sitting at the restaurant and you just pray a silent prayer to yourself? Please don't order from that side of the menu. Please, please don't order. I was broke. Fell in love with her. Uh, was led of the Lord to say, yes, this is the one I need to marry. And uh, I remember looking for, for her ring. And every time I'd walk into a jeweler there in the diamond district there of Los Angeles, um, the jeweler would take those diamonds and would never just plop them on the counter, but he would first or she would first take out a black velvet cloth and would put these diamonds against the background and backdrop of the black velvet cloth. And it would make against that contrast those, those diamonds just pop a little bit more radiantly. That's what Paul's doing here. First three verses is a black velvet cloth. 
And that's why, friends, you must always, like John Newton, don't stare at the sins of your past. But every now and then, it's helpful to glance at who you were outside of Christ. To look at the rearview mirror and to see what God saved you from. And he says, you were by nature children of wrath. Some of you are sitting here and you don't know Christ is Lord and Savior. Wait a minute, I thought God loved me. How can, you, how can you say that he's angry with me and he loves me at the same time? Those two things don't mix. You must not have kids. Because <laughs> if you've got kids, you understand can't nobody tick you off like those little tax write-offs. <laughs> you love them and they make you angry. at this. In fact, anger is a sign of love. I'm thinking now of Abraham Joshua Shell, that great Jewish rabbi who marched in the streets of Selma with Dr. King. He says, the only thing worse than hatred is indifference. So as we inch closer into the ethnic implications of the gospel, if something in you just kind of shrugs its shoulders and says, ah, I can just take it or leave it. If you're indifferent to these things, you don't have the heart of Jesus. But God. Mm. <laughs> Being rich in mercy. And then several times he says, you are saved by grace through faith. I went to a seminary that in its history, there was a point in which they did not allow people of color in. A seminary that says, let's just preach the gospel. Finally, things changed. And then they, they came to the point in this seminary where they said, sorry is not enough. There needs to be some repentance. And again, when I applied, I was Poe. And so I got a scholarship to this seminary called the SIRS Scholarship, Scholarship for Under-Resourced and Represented Students. I hate to admit this, I got a scholarship for something I had no control over, being black. I'd love to tell you, academic scholarship, merit-based scholarship. Man, I, I had a 4.0. They accepted me. I, I maintained that 4.0. It got me through. I, I'd love to tell you because that's where the boasting is. You know what Paul's saying? You didn't get to the kingdom by merit. There are no merit-based scholarships. By grace you have been saved. And what gets you into the kingdom grace is what keeps you in the kingdom grace. Now in verse 11, he now goes from the vertical dimensions of the gospel 
to the horizontal implications of that gospel. If you get nothing else I say, get what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For in Ephesians 2, he helps us to understand that the gospel is cross-shaped. What do I mean by that? There are two dimensions to the cross, a vertical dimension. This is what buttresses um, that individual into the ground. It's what stabilizes the person. This is, this is the gospel. It is, it is vertical. In fact, Paul would say it this way to the Corinthians. It is of first importance that Christ died in my place and for my sins first. But the gospel is also horizontal. It has implications for for how we relate to others. I can say it this way. Anyone who says they've been reconciled to God but does not love their neighbor gives us reason to pause and beg the question, are they legitimately saved? The issue here is not whether or not you lost your salvation. You can't lose what you did not earn. But how do you know that you're saved? It's how you relate to others. John would say it this way. How, do I, how can I claim to love God whom I can't see, vertical, yet hate my brother who I do see? And the Jewish concept of hate was not feelings of ill will. It was separation. That's why in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus would say, unless you're willing to hate mother, father, sister, and brother, you're not worthy of me. He's not calling us to feelings of ill will. He's calling us to separate from him if we have to, to follow him. That's why in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus would say an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. How can I claim to receive the vertical forgiveness of God through Christ and keep grudges with people made in his image? That's why in Matthew 25, Jesus would say a greedy Christian is an oxymoron. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done also to me. How can I claim to have received the benevolent generosity of God through Christ and hoard the riches and possessions of this world from brothers and sisters who are in need? And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is saying, a racist or prejudiced, or ethnically indifferent Christian is an oxymoron. How can you only do life with people who look like, think like, act like, and vote like you when Jesus died for the world? In fact, Revelation chapter 5, when he says that we've been ransomed by his blood and people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, that word ransomed is agorizo. It is a word that means supermarket. It is a picture of Jesus on the cross going to the supermarket of, of humanity and saying, I'm going to select intentionally people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, which means in heaven there will be no unreached people groups. 
How do they get there? Not organically. Because some of y'all are on that page. This this just should happen organically. Listen to me. Racism in America was a centuries-old, intentional, proactive, well-thought-out, blueprinted plan. And to undo it is going to take the same intentionality a thousand times in the opposite direction. So Paul is writing, and he gets to verse 11. He says, now let me, I'm just talking about the gospel. Now let me just stop right here and talk about you Gentiles in the flesh. So you need to understand, whenever Paul walks into a city, he always asks two questions. First, where's the synagogue? I want to preach Christ to the Jews. Preach Christ to the Jews. Acts 17, he walks into Athens, goes to the synagogue. Acts 19, he walks into Ephesus, goes to the synagogue. Some Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ. But he's not done. Why? Because his missiology is founded on Romans 1.16. In Romans 1.16, I know we quote it evangelistically, but I need you to hear it sociologically. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those that believe, hear it, to the Jew, not to the Jew only, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. In other words, Paul walks in and he says, I want to reach all of Ephesus. I want to reach all of Athens. So let me start off with the Jews, and then I'm finished with them in the synagogue. Tell me, where do the Gentiles hang out? Oh, they're up there on Mars Hill, they tell Paul. And he goes up to Mars Hill and he shares Christ with them in Ephesus. Oh, they're in the hall of Tyrannus, hour upon hour. He reasons with them from the scriptures. And now he's got a problem. Some Jews come to know Christ. Some Gentiles come to know Christ. So what does he do? Had he been following the American church, maybe he would have started two separate churches. Or had he been following the American church of the 21st century, maybe one church with a couple different campuses to keep the demographic separated. Paul says, no, if you claim to have been vertically reconciled to God through Christ, then the theater to work out what you claim vertically, horizontally, among people who don't look like, act like, think like, or vote like you is the church. I'm starting one church. Work it out. That's why, friends, you need to know the first century norm, it was multi-ethnic. Have you ever been reading your Bibles and you just kind of go, why is he talking about food? Why is he talking about food? Because the church was diverse. If it's a homogenous church, food is not an issue. Eat your kosher meal, and that's fine. Have your mayonnaise sandwiches or whatever. (laughs) But when it's a multi-ethnic church, and the Gentile family invites the Jewish family from church over, and they're looking at some pork chops. <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Multi-ethnic churches are messy. Listen, if I read Revelation right, 
we need to kill this whole colorblind talk. I'm black. Look at me, black. As that great theologian James Brown said, say it loud. <laughs> I'm black. Psalm 139 says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God did not pull a Stevie Wonder when he made me. <laughs> and as a black man, I have certain ethnic proclivities. I don't hike. <laughs> You may walk up that mountain for what? Like, that's fun for you? <laughs> like, seriously. Some of y'all are like, oh, you're stereotyping. Seriously, check out the Discovery Channel. You won't find too many Aishas or Tyrones. It's just not how we roll, right? Certain news stories, I, I'm telling you, black folk ain't got nothing to do with. Man gets mauled by bear. You've never heard of a black person getting mauled by, Heidi has. Some worship songs, you know, black people didn't have nothing to do with. Oceans. <laughs> Keisha did not write Oceans. She just got her hair braided or done. She not getting no ocean. <laughs> we're different. We are, we're, dead. look, I know I'm, I'm painting in broad shows. I understand that, I, I, I get that. But we're different. And so when one group demands of another that they be silence, the church should not be a place where I have to sequester a certain part of the Imago Dei. There is no ethnic home team in the church of Jesus Christ. You don't own this. Dave doesn't own it. Jesus owns it. Amen. So Paul says that Jesus Christ in his death he says right here in Ephesians 2, has abolished the dividing wall of hostility. Dave alluded to this last week. The, the temple, this is a reference to the temple. The Jewish temple had four courts. The outermost court was the court of the Gentiles, the only place Gentiles could worship. Then the court of women. Uh, then the, uh, then the, court of, um, uh, the court of Israelites, I believe. Then the court of the priests. It's interesting. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus walks into the temple, which means he's walking the way it's set up into the outermost court, which is the court of Gentiles, and he gets ticked off by what he sees. What are they doing there? Some of the religious leaders have commercial, commercialized the house of God and are selling their wares. I don't think Jesus is just ticked because of the commercialization of his house. I think he's also ticked because he's reacting to a very subtle form of racism. Where are they selling their wares? In the only place where Gentiles could worship, it is as if they're sending the message they don't matter. So Jesus runs them out. 
And in the 1870s, archaeologists actually found the partition that separates the court of Gentiles from the other courts. And on it were written words to, to this effect, proceed no further upon fear of death. Right there on that partition. In fact, the reason why Paul goes to jail the last time and is ultimately killed, he is falsely accused of taking his dear friend Trophimus into the forbidden parts of the temple. And yet what does Paul say? was the cross that served as a sledgehammer, demolishing the dividing wall of hostility. The picture is poignant. So now Jews and Gentiles can rush in together worshiping God. And yet if there's one thing we understand about American history, and you learned it last week, the American church gets an A plus for resurrecting what God in Christ has already demolished. Just one little historical reference. 1700s, late 1780s, Richard Allen, other African-Americans are there at a church in Philadelphia. Black man is down on his knees praying, and he has the audacity to pray in the whites-only section. Just hear that, the whites-only section of church. The whites get so incensed, they pick him up and they throw him out. The blacks get incensed, and two weeks later, they all leave the church, and they buy a little blacksmith shop, and this is the beginning of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And this begins a sad chapter in American church history. And it's something we have to wrestle with. The black church exists because the white church failed to be the church. We have to own that. We have to own that. And what does Ephesians 2 teach us? cross of Jesus Christ abolished the dividing wall of hostility. What's the dividing wall? It is a picture of systemic injustice. In the scriptures, justice and injustice is never just personal. It's also systemic. And then he goes on to say that he might create in himself one new man. Paul's writing in Greek, and Greek is a very nuanced language. Several words for new. One word for new is neos, N-E-O-S, N-E-O-S. Neos speaks of something new as it relates to time. It's the latest MacBook Pro. It's the latest um, 787 to come off the Boeing assembly line. Uh, it's the latest, uh, uh, should have mentioned Boeing. It's the latest um, <laughs> Ford Expedition or Ford Explorer. Explorer. It's the 2019. That's neos. It's the latest. Paul doesn't use neos. He uses kainos, K-A-I-N as in Nancy, O-S, K-A-I-N-O-S. Kainos speaks of something that is new as it relates to kind. It is something so new the world doesn't have a category for. It's the idea of invention. 
Neos is the latest MacBook Pro. Kynos is the first computer. Neos is the latest 787. Kynos is the Wright Brothers at Kitty Hawk Beach. Can you imagine standing there in the early 1900s at Kitty Hawk Beach? You have no category for what you're seeing. Mind blown. This is the word Paul uses to speak of the church, one new man in Christ. Do you know in Paul's day, the only place you could go to see meaningful relationships across gender lines, across class lines, across ethnic lines was the church of Jesus Christ. So when a person walked into reality Ephesus and stood in the back there, their minds were blown. My fear is the average first-time visitor at the average church in America is not having their mind blown. Of course this is the Fox News church. Of course this is the CNN church. Of course this is the MSNBC church. Of course! So I started to wrestle with these things. And these things were very hard for me. I remember being called nigger when I was in Bible college. Bible college. And the emotional tailspin. And then God calls me to work at a white church. And I walked into there like Jonah walked into Nineveh. <laughs> and God had to spank me and discipline me for holding grudges against people made in the image of God. And then he says, I'm not through with you. I want you to go to a city you've never been to before, Memphis, the city that assassinated Dr. King. that has got a park in it called Confederate Park. I want you to plant a multi-ethnic church right there. I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> but I couldn't get Ephesians 2 out of my spirit. So we walked in there with 26 people. I'm sitting looking at 26 people in the living room. I'm the only piece of chocolate in the room. I'm like, man, God's lost his mind. And the next thing I know, thousands are showing up. And one Sunday I'm preaching. You could always tell first-time African-American guests at our church. They, they come suited and booted, no Crocs. And this, this old African-American woman in her 80s, big church hat, she comes down front with tears streaming down her face. She squeezes my hand with all of her octogenarian strength. She says, young man, I grew up in this city, Memphis. She says, for years I was a domestic, I was the help. I cleaned the home of white families. She says, I was here when Dr. King was assassinated. I remembered the curfews. And she says, back then in 1968, I began to pray a prayer. God, I can't even believe I'm asking you this. I want to see the races come together and would the church lead the way? Squeezing my hand with all of her strength, she says, you young man, and this church is an answer to those prayers. There's a visible demonstration to the mind-blowing power of the cross when people from different tribes and tongues 
No, we don't eradicate our ethnicities. But when I subjugate my blackness to my Jesusness, and I do what rubs against the grain of how my flesh has been ethnically formed, and I come to the table of koinonia fellowship, all of me, there's a witness in that. I love mayonnaise. <laughs> mayonnaise blows my mind. Because mayonnaise got stuff in it that shouldn't be doing community with each other. Oil and water. you get oil and water to hang out so closely to one another? You chemistry folk understand. Mayonnaise has something called an emulsifier. An emulsifier is a substance that brings together other entities, even entities that don't like each other. In mayonnaise, the emulsifier is egg. It's as if the egg says, Oil, I know you don't like water, but just plug into me. And water, I know you ain't down with oil, but just plug into me. And as you hang out with me, you'll start hanging out with other things you never thought you would. <laughs> On the cross, Jesus became our emulsifier. He said, black folk, just hang out with me. Korean, just hang out with me. Mexicans, hang out with me. White folk, hang out with me. And when I become preeminent, watch me reorient your proclivities and interests and taste buds, and you'll start doing life with folk you never thought imaginable because when I move in, I don't come in to rearrange the furniture. I come in to blow up the old house and to create a new house for if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation, one new man. So, Father, I pray for reality. I pray for, the, for them that they would live into the new reality that's theirs. I pray against passive postures in different spirits. Oh, God, I'm sure in a talk like this, some people are wishing I would have pushed harder. Others are wishing I wouldn't have pushed. But we're tired of Satan getting the victory in America. And we've come to claim back what's rightfully ours. For greater is he who's in us than he that's in the world. So where we need to apologize, may we apologize. Where we need to repent, may we repent. But I don't want to wait and die till I go to heaven to experience life with people from various tribes and tongues and ethnicities. I want a taste of heaven now. For your kingdom come, 
your will be done in San Francisco as it is in heaven. God bless you.